You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now to the book of John, chapter 18. And before we begin, let's bow for a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, we come before Your Word with grateful hearts and thankful hearts that You've given to us the truth in Scripture, that we can know the truth, that You've opened our eyes to see and behold the truth, and that Christ, the One who is the truth, was incarnate in human flesh and walked among us on this, on this globe, on this earth, so that we might behold Your glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Help us, we pray, to see Christ in, in all that we look at this morning. We pray that our hearts be filled with love for Him. And that your word would serve to sanctify us by the truth and equip us so that we might serve you and that we might do the works that you have called us to do to your honor and to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 18, we're beginning some, to turning something of a corner this morning as we're looking at what is the last transition in the Gospel of John. Uh, when we get to the end of chapter 17, we have gone past all seven of John's miracles, all seven of the discourses, and all seven of the I am statements. And I mentioned to you back when we started the Gospel of John that if you can remember or memorize the seven signs, the seven discourses, and the seven statements in John's Gospel, you'll have a, a you'll go a good way toward grasping the significance of the entire Gospel. And we've looked at those seven miracles, starting with the turning of water into wine in chapter 2, the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, the walking on water in chapter 6, the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, and then the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. And around those seven signs, those seven miracles, John weaves these seven discourses, seven extended teaching times from Jesus, which explain and illustrate the purpose and the significance of the miracles. And so we have the seven discourses. The I am the living, uh, sorry, the, the living water discourse in chapter 4, the new birth discourse in chapter 3, I guess you should have started with that one. Chapter 5 is the divine son discourse. Chapter 6, the bread of life discourse. Chapter 8, the Light of the World Discourse. Chapter 10, the Good Shepherd Discourse. And then chapters 13 through 17 is the Farewell or Upper Room Discourse. And then woven into those discourses are these seven significant I Am statements. Jesus uses that title, I Am, of Himself more than 20 times in John's Gospel, but seven times, very significantly, He couples it with some attribute or some aspect of the character and nature of God, mostly pulled out of the Old Testament to show that He is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies, and that he is the divine God of the Old Testament, the one that the Jews were familiar with. And so we have in chapter 4, I am the living water. Chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the door. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection of the life. And then chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those are the seven I am statements. So if you want to use the term sermons instead of discourses, then we have in John's Gospel seven signs, seven sermons, and seven statements. Why the number seven? Is there something significant to that? I'm not inclined to think that there is anything significant to the number seven, since John doesn't give us any significance for the number seven. But at least we can say this, that woven throughout the fabric of the Gospel of John is this wonderful balance of discourses, sermons, these divine statements of his I am nature, and these seven signs that he gives confirming who he is. So he makes the statement, I am this, 
And then he explains what that I am statement means, what the significance of it is. And then he gives a miracle to give evidence of the fact that what he has said and what he has described is in fact true. But all of that is behind us now in John's Gospel. In chapter 18, we turn something of a corner. So today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to go through an overview of chapters 18 and 19 and 20 and 21. We're going to fly over all four chapters. And the reason for doing this is because you may have noticed that we go rather slowly through the text when we go week by week. And it's taken us a while to go through the Gospel of John, not because I speak slowly. I don't think that I speak slowly. Maybe I do speak slowly, and that's why it's taken so much time. But we've, we take the time to dig into the minutiae and the details of it. If you're curious, this is the 275th sermon in the Gospel of John since we started. Now, the good news is, it sure doesn't feel like that long, does it? <laughs> okay, well, maybe it does feel that like that long. 275, but it, it serves our purposes from time to time to sort of bring the plane up to 40,000 feet and kind of do a, an overview of the territory that is going to occupy us for the next little while. I hope it's just a little while um, to get an idea of where we're at, where we have been. As we work through the minutia of the text, it's always good to do so with an eye on where we're going, where, what the author intends for us to understand. So getting the overview kind of helps us to get our bearings again, to see where we have been, to see where we are going and to say, OK, here's where we're at. And this is what we're going to be covering in the next little bit. So that's what we're doing today in chapter 18. Let me give you some general or chapter 18 through 21. Let me give you some general observations of all four of these chapters before we, we dive into the text. And, and don't panic. We're not going to read all four chapters and, and give you an explanation of all four chapters. We are just going to be hitting some of the highlights. But let me give you a few sort of general observations. First, it is, it is noteworthy to observe the amount of time that John gives to the final week in the life of Jesus. In John's Gospel, the final week of Jesus begins in chapter 12, verse 1, which was six days before the Passover. So everything from chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 19, when they laid him in the tomb, that is one week in the life of Jesus. One week. Now that, a number of chapters, but that is a good portion of John's Gospel. More than a third of John's Gospel is devoted to one week in the life of Jesus. John is not unique because the other Gospel writers all follow suit. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them devote roughly one-third of each of their Gospels is dedicated to the last week in the life of Jesus. And if you include the resurrection accounts in in Luke 24 and Mark 16 and Matthew chapter 28 and the resurrection accounts in chapter 20 and 21 of John, then that means that fully 40% of all of the gospel records are devoted to the last week in the life of Jesus and the resurrection. Now that's significant. 33 years of life get two-thirds of the gospel narrative. One week, one week gets a third of the material. Now just judging from that, what would you say is the emphasis of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What would you say is the most significant thing that they really want to zero in on? It would be the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing we observe is the amount of detail that John gives to this final week. Second, we're going to notice, I just want you to notice the outline for these four chapters. Chapter 18 and chapter 19 have to do with the crucifixion, the arrest in the garden, the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. That's chapter 18 and 19. Chapter 20 and 21 is the resurrection and four post-resurrection appearances of our Lord. And the third thing I want to make you aware of is that we're, as we go through this, we're going to be, I'm going to be offering something of a harmony of all four Gospels. I haven't really done this up to this point in John because John is so unique. The other three Gospels, what we call the synoptics, sin meaning same, optic meaning to see, they see the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all pretty much see the same events from, the, from very much the same vantage point or perspective. John is entirely unique. John is not one of the synoptics. He is a unique gospel. 
All of his material is unique. The first 17 chapters are very unique. And what I've done as we've gone through John is every once in a while when there's a gap in John, I've pulled from the other Gospels and said, now in this gap, these things happen. Maybe you remember some of that. For instance, between chapter 5 and chapter 6, depending on how you date the feast at the beginning of chapter 5, there is a gap between 5 and 6 of between 12 and 18 months. Either one of those, depending on what feast is mentioned at the beginning of chapter 5. Well, that's a big gap. And when we got to that, I told you from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, here are all the things that were going on. And that kind of helped set the stage and give us some background and sort of color, fill in some of the blanks and color the narrative for us so we understood what was going on from other events that we were familiar with. Well, with John, the first, there's very little overlap in the first 17 chapters with the other three Gospels. But now we get to chapter 18. It's the arrest in the garden and the betrayal of Judas and the trials and the crucifixion and the care of the body and placing him in the tomb and then the resurrection. So suddenly beginning in chapter 18, there is this tremendous amount of overlap with the records of the other three Gospels. And so what I want to do in as we work our way through these last four chapters is to pull in the information that is in the other three Gospels in, not in order to interpret the text of John. Some of you theo-nerds will appreciate this. Every text has its own interpretation in its context. So we don't need the Gospels outside of John to understand the text. But what we want to do is kind of shine the light, as it were, upon the Gospel of John from those other passages so that we can see what's happening. Because sometimes we read John and then we read Luke and we say, well, John says this happened in this way, in this order, and Luke says these things happened. And yet we know that they're kind of describing the same event. How do these go together? Have you ever had that happen? Comparing gospel with gospel, how do these things go together? Well, in in these last four chapters, what I want to do is harmonize all of that and present a way of seeing the text and shedding light on it from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that will help us to kind of harmonize. And I think it's probably best that we that we really deal with the other gospels because I'm not going to have. I mean, honestly, is there anybody here that believes I'm going to live long enough to preach through another gospel? Anybody? Yeah, I didn't think so. Right? We get done with John. We're going to follow it up with Hebrews, and after Hebrews, I'm pretty much going to go into some convalescent state where my children are going to be changing my diaper and putting my cheeseburger into blenders. That's what it's going to be. So I'm not, I might as well now take the opportunity to kind of handle all of the other Gospels as well and sort of bring them all to bear together. And that way I can say that I preached through all four Gospels, even though I'm cheating you by just giving you John. Okay, now to the text, chapter 18, to the text. We got an idea of the outline, chapter 18 and 19, deal with the death and the burial of Jesus. Now let's look at some of these details. The very first thing that we notice when we get to chapter 18 is the arrival of Judas on the scene. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now those are the 11 that have been with him through the upper room and the discourse and the prayer in John 17. Verse 2. Now, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And the intention was obviously to arrest Jesus under the cover of darkness. So remember, Judas had left the scene back in chapter 13 when Jesus, with all 12 of the disciples present, dismissed Judas from the gathering. And he had told Peter and John, and he indicated who the, who the betrayer was going to be, and he dismissed Judas to go off and to do what Judas was going to go do. And Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart. He knew what Judas was intending to do. He knew where Judas was going. He indicated that to Peter and to John, and he dismissed him from the group. And then everything from the middle of chapter 13 until the end of chapter 17, Judas has been absent. He has been off cutting his deal, inking the deal with the religious leaders. He has been off uh, gathering together a Roman cohort to come and to arrest Jesus. In the garden, and because Judas knew where Jesus would meet with the disciples, for they often met there, 
Judas knew right where Jesus was going, and that's what the religious leaders needed to do. That's the information that Judas sold to them. And so he arrived on the scene with the Roman cohort. So we have the conspirator arriving with this Roman cohort to arrest Jesus. And look down at verse 12. They did so. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Beginning in verse 15, going through roughly verse 40, we have sort of three different dynamics going on. We have the cowardice of Peter. He, is, he, he denies Jesus in this passage. We have a series of trials that Jesus goes through in the midst of this night. And then we have some interaction with the crowds, where the crowds kind of come into this and begin to demand the blood of Jesus. And so, let's deal first of all with the, the, the coward who is Peter. Of course, all of the disciples have fled. Jesus instructed the cohort to let the disciples go so that he could fulfill the scripture which said not one of them has perished because of, because of what Christ did. So that was a fulfillment of scripture. So the rest of the disciples have gone. And now John gives to us the record of Peter's denial of the Lord. And the first denial takes place after verse 15. It's actually down in verse 17. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. And then we have the, the account of one of the trials in verse 19 through 24. And then Peter's second and third denial are down in verses 25 through 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again and immediately a rooster crowed. So the other gospel writers, I think it's Matthew, who records all three of Peter's denials sort of back to back, giving us the impression that this was a rapid fire Q&A with Peter in which he denied the Lord three times. But John separates the first denial from the second and third denial, allowing us to see that this took place over a period of time while a trial was going on with Jesus. Now, during the course of that evening, Jesus stood before or was, uh, was examined by, it seems like, no less than five different formal or informal courts or trials that night. Five different formal or informal courts, trials that evening. And this all took place between the arrest at night, all the way through the night, during the early morning hours, 1 and 2 and 3 a.m., all the way through until Pilate woke up the next morning. Um, five of them. Now, here's what's interesting. Not all of the gospel, no, there's no single gospel writer that records all five of these. So this is where we kind of, you read the different accounts and you say, okay, this happened, it looks like it happened in this order, and you put them all together. I haven't been able to give the time and attention to a harmony of all of this in the manner that I will when we finally get to it, because I was preparing to preach four chapters today, not one little passage. So I reserve the right to correct anything that I'm about to say later on, upon further understanding and further study. But it appears that there were five of them, and they were in this order. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 18, it says that they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was high priest that year. Annas was sometimes called the high priest because he was still sort of the, the papa of the family, still in that position of power. And they led Jesus to Annas, and this is his very first trial that evening, this before Annas. Now, this is an informal trial. It's, an, it's somewhat of an inquisition. It's a questioning time as Annas is questioning him. Annas didn't really have authority to do any kind of condemnation or officially try Jesus. That would have rested with Caiaphas because Caiaphas was high priest. Annas was the former high priest. He was father-in-law of Caiaphas. All he could do was kind of try and wring some information out of Jesus. 
We get the accounts of his inquisition in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And that's where that, that is Annas who is doing that questioning. He is, he is inquiring concerning his disciples and concerning his teaching. And as I said, this is an informal trial. We know that it's informal because Caiaphas was the one who had the authority to do any kind of, a, of an official condemnation. This would be more like sitting in the, in the interrogation room with the, the two-way glass and just asking questions, trying to get you to see if there's some information they can get to really kind of get a, a confession out of you so that they know what to charge you with. That was what this trial, this mock trial was like. After that, Jesus was shuffled off from Annas to Caiaphas. And John mentions this, but gives us no details of that account. Matthew and Mark fill in all of the details of the second trial. John mentions it down in verse 24. So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. But then John doesn't give us any details of what was said or what transpired. As I said, Matthew and Mark give the details of that trial, and we'll cover that when we get to it. Jesus' third appearance then was before Pilate. Beginning in verse 28, Actually, down farther than 28, they brought Jesus to Pilate, wanting a condemnation from Pilate concerning Jesus. And so Jesus then is, is examined by Pilate the first time. And all four gospel writers mention this first appearance before Pilate. All four of them do. This is significant. The, the, the appearance before Pilate is very significant, which is why all four of them mentioned it. After Pilate, Jesus was sent to Herod Antipas. This isn't recorded by John or Matthew or Mark. Interestingly, it is only recorded by Luke. And Luke says that Antipas, Herod Antipas, was in Jerusalem at the time. He normally wasn't, but he was there. So Pilate shuffled Jesus off to Herod Antipas, where Herod Antipas, Luke says, wanted to see Jesus because he had heard about him for a long period of time. He was hoping that Jesus would perform a sign for him. He wanted some sort of a show. And so Herod Antipas examined Jesus that evening and then sent him back to Pilate for his fifth and final trial before Pilate, before Pilate handed him over to be crucified. The the Encounter with Herod Antipas, Luke ends that little record by saying, from that day forth, Pilate and Herod became friends. Before that, they had been political enemies. But as you know, there is nothing that will bring together wicked enemies like the presence of somebody who is righteous. And so they could both agree on that, and there is nothing that will unite wicked people like a righteous man. And so that's what happened with Herod Antipas and Pilate. Um, they came together and they became friends because they both, because of this issue, they came up with Jesus. So five trials. Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod Antipas, and then back to Pilate. And then Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And the crowds, in the midst of all of this, the crowds get involved. Look at verse 40 of chapter 18. So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Look down to chapter 19, verse 6, it is. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Look at chapter 19, verse 15. They cry out again for his blood. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Peter said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now some of those sentiments, those expressions there that we hear on the lips of the Jewish leaders, we find out were also being chanted by the crowd from the other Gospels. So we get the picture that, the, 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 that Jesus was presented before the crowds and is as if the chief priests and the Jewish leaders were out amongst the people, inciting the people to, to, to call for this. And so they are, as far as John is concerned, as far as John tells us, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders are really behind this whole turning against Jesus, and they're inciting the crowds, and crowds are the easiest thing to manipulate, and the chief priests know that, and they manipulated the crowds to call for the blood of Jesus. So the crowd gets involved in this. Then beginning in verse 19, chapter uh, 16, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. In verse chapter 19, verses 17 to the verse 30, all give the account of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And we will look at some of the details of that crucifixion when we get to it. What I want you to notice and what is significant in John is that um, part of John's record of Jesus on the cross, it, it includes three of Jesus' seven statements from the cross. Again, the number seven, and I'm not suggesting there's anything spiritual significant. We don't get into numerology. That's not biblical hermeneutics, um, making doctrine out of numbers. But there were seven statements that Jesus gave um, while he hung on the cross. Three of them are recorded by John. And we get to some of the other ones, like Matthew records uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's one of the other ones. And we might cover all seven of them, seven of them when we get to the end of chapter, or the middle of chapter 19. But I want you to notice the three that John records. First, beginning in verse 26, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So behold your son, behold your mother. That's the first one that John records. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine with a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Behold your son, behold your mother. Uh, I am thirsty and it is finished. Those are the three statements that John records that Jesus said on the cross. And, and the other gospel writers record the other four. And we'll look at them and we'll kind of harmonize them and bring those all into the, to chapter 19 and all of the events of chapter 19 as they would have unfolded when we get there. Beginning in verse 31, John gives us the details of the care of the body of Jesus. Um, the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. They were trying to get the bodies down and, and disposed of before the Sabbath came at the evening of sundown so that they wouldn't be in violation of the Sabbath. They just crucified a righteous man. They're concerned about violating the Sabbath. I mean, there's some irony in that, right? The whole evening has been a travesty of justice. They just crucified the Son of God. And what are they concerned about? Let's get the bodies out of the way so that we're not violating some one of our uh, picayune little Sabbath instructions. That was their concern. So they rushed to take care of the body of Jesus. They wanted the legs broken. And Pilate, uh, John records that when they came to break his legs, he had already died. And so they shoved a spear into his side so that none of his bones would be broken and so that they would look upon him whom they have pierced. Both of those things were a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And so um, after they did that, they took the body down. They uh, laid it in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They did the minimum amount of preparation in order to prepare the body just until the first day of the week on Monday or Sunday. They would come back with the intention of doing the rest of the burial preparations and then laying him in the tomb in, in a different tomb permanently. So that's the care of the body that finishes up chapter 19. So when we get to the end of chapter 19, verse 42 says, Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. You get the sense all the way through the care of the body that everything is being rushed. In fact, all the way through chapter 19 and 20, we get the sense that everything is being rushed. It's being rushed, at least in terms of the, the leadership and what they're trying to accomplish. All night long, they're shuffling Jesus from one person to another, back and forth like a hot potato, passing him back from one court to another, trying to get something that they can they can, they can nail him on so that they can crucify him. They finally bring him to Pilate. He's examined, and, and the people finally force this whole decision on Pilate. They crucify Jesus, and they want to hurry up and get him executed and get it done so they can get him in a tomb, and they find the, the nearby tomb and put him in the nearby tomb, doing the absolute bare minimum that is required to, to get him there until Sunday morning. The whole thing seems rushed, but what we see as we get into it is the whole thing is happening according to a divine timetable. From the human vantage point, it was all rushed. They were trying to get it done before sunset. From the divine timetable, everything, of course, is unfolding just as God would want it to unfold. So we have in chapter 18 and chapter 19 the account of the conspirator, the Roman cohort, the crowds, the cowards, the courts, the cross, and then the care for the body. That's clever alliteration right there, isn't it? 
Sometimes my alliteration makes a Southern Baptist jealous. Then we come to the resurrection in verse chapters 20 and 21. The resurrection of Jesus. And this is the last two chapters here. The last two chapters, the resurrection and the post-resurrection accounts. Verses 1 through 10 is the account of the resurrection itself. And this is paralleled in Luke chapter 24, Mark chapter 16, and Matthew chapter 28. So all four Gospels record the account of the resurrection itself. Um, Each of the Gospel writers records somewhat differently the resurrection appearances. And of course, each of the Gospel writers records somewhat differently the details of that morning of the resurrection. If we take Mark, and I'm, I'm going to pull out Mark for just a second. Mark is something of a unique gospel in, in terms of the, the quickness and the brevity with, Mitch, with, with which Mark records everything. And then we are all aware, if you have a Bible with any footnote in it at all, we're all aware that verses 9 through 20 of the Gospel of Mark are not in some early manuscripts. It's a questionable text. It has a questionable ending. And most people question whether those verses really belong at the ending of Mark or not. I'm inclined to say that I don't think that they were original with Mark's gospel, though they may record actual original events, but they were trustworthy, at least to the early church. But I don't think that they were part of Mark's original gospel. That means that chapter 8 or chapter 16, verse 8 of Mark ends with the account of the resurrection and then the women fleeing the tomb in fear. Now, that's how Mark ended his gospel. And I suspect that it is how he intentionally ended his gospel. If that is the case, that Mark doesn't record any post-resurrection appearances. But the longer ending of Mark, which is tagged on at the end there, verses 9 through 20, does give an account of three different resurrection appearances. So here are the resurrection appearances that we have in all four Gospels. Matthew contains two resurrection appearances. Mark, without the long ending, is zero. Mark, with the long ending, is three resurrection appearances. Luke gives the details of three resurrection appearances and then mentions a fourth appearance that he doesn't give any details about. John gives us details about four different resurrection appearances. Two of the resurrection appearances that John gives us are covered by other Gospels, mentioned by other Gospels. Two of them are unique only to John. And we wouldn't even know about them if John had not been written. So here's what that tells us. It tells us that of all four Gospels, John gives us the most detail concerning what happened from the resurrection until the ascension of Jesus. He gives us the most amount of detail. There are two full chapters of post-resurrection richness that we get to dive into. And I almost can't even I almost can't even wait to get there. And then not only that, but John gives us more post-resurrection appearances than any of the other gospel writers. Luke gives us details about 3, Matthew gives us details about 2, John gives us details about 4 of them. So it's just it's a wealth. It's a wealth of theology and a wealth of material that John gives us. Wouldn't it be great if we were dealing with the resurrection accounts around Easter Sunday? And I don't mean 2020. I mean like this next Easter Sunday. Next Easter Sunday. It's only 20 Sundays away. Now, I think it would be great, but I'm making you no promises because there is a whole lot of really good and rich stuff in chapters 18 and 19. But we're kind of, we're kind of on track to do that. And hopefully, Lord willing, we will be able to do it. I think there was something else I was going to say about those resurrection appearances. Oh, oh. When it comes to harmonizing the Gospels, it is at the resurrection event itself which is most in need of sort of sinking and harmonizing the accounts of the four Gospels. It is, it is the first ten, chapter, chapter, uh, ten verses of John chapter 20 that details the resurrection of Christ and the parallel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That is where Bible skeptics get their most fodder for rejecting the Gospel accounts. 
They go there and they say that without even doing any work in the text, without even understanding how ancient texts were written or why they were written or the intention of each gospel author or their perspective or anything like that, without giving any effort to try and harmonize them, gospel uh, uh, Bible skeptics will throw up their hands and say the resurrection accounts in the four gospels are a heap of in irreconcilable differences and contradictions. And it, it just demonstrates how spurious the whole New Testament is. That's the attack of Bart Ehrman and atheists and skeptics who reject the New Testament. That is the conclusion that most weak and feeble-minded people would come to. Because it does take a little bit of effort to sort of put together the gospel accounts in a way that, that we understand that there are no contradictions. We always understand that there are four different independent and unique accounts of those events. Not four contradictory accounts, four independent and unique accounts. And if those accounts all read exactly the same and there were no differences in them, you know what the Bible skeptic would say? The Bible skeptic would say there's been collusion. You can tell that the four of them are colluding together to get the story straight so that there wouldn't be any doubt about it as they try and lie to us. But when we notice that there are differences in the details of the gospel accounts, that is evidence that it was not written by collusion. Instead, it is four independent people with their own eyewitnesses telling the same story from four different vantage points. And can it be harmonized? It can be harmonized. Not only can it be harmonized, but there's more than one way of harmonizing those events. And part of the confusion with the gospel records with the resurrection of Christ is the fact that on that Sunday morning, there was so much activity going on and so many people going so many different directions. You have the women early coming to the tomb. You have the earthquake and the stone being rolled away. And so the soldiers were fleeing the tomb. And then some gospel writers record some of those women who came to the tomb. Other gospel writers record other of those women who came to the tomb. And there's some overlap between some of their accounts. And then when the when they got there, the some of the ladies went back to tell the disciples. Others stayed there at the tomb. An angel appeared there. The soldiers are on their way in. And when the women, some of the women got back to the disciples, John and Peter ran to the tomb. When the earthquake hit and the stone rolled away, it was like somebody took a stick and hit a hornet's nest. Jerusalem was a buzz. And so what you have is each of the gospel writers capturing all of that activity and all of those travels from their own unique little perspective, mentioning some details but leaving them out. And when you get together and you put them all together, it is a wonderful harmony of what happened that Sunday morning. There is no contradiction. And when we get to the resurrection accounts, I promise you, we'll take the time to harmonize it. Now, there are themes that John weaves together in the post-resurrection accounts. All the way through the Gospel of John, we've noticed all of these themes that John brings together. He weaves all of these together in this beautiful tapestry, which is his Gospel. And it's amazing how John does this. And we've seen themes repeated over and over again. When we get to the resurrection, the post-resurrection appearances, it's as if all of these themes sort of come to the surface. All of these threads come to the surface. And we see them all again. And we see this, this, this John dealing with these themes in the uniqueness of the way that he records even the resurrection appearances that are recorded by the other gospel writers. Let me show you how John kind of weaves these themes into the post-resurrection appearances. Look in chapter... Well, I forgot to give you the four resurrection appearances in John. Let me give you those first. The first one is to Mary Magdalene, which is also recorded in Matthew and Mark. The second resurrection appearances, that's in verses 18, sorry, verse 11 through 18. The second resurrection appearances, beginning in verse 19, uh, going through verse 24, and then 25 is an interim, and that is the resurrection appearance to the disciples minus Thomas. And then there is the resurrection appearance. The third one that John records is in verse 26 through 29, and that's to the disciples with Thomas present. And then the fourth resurrection appearance is the bulk of chapter 21, which is 
uh, to some of his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And that's where he makes them breakfast and he restores Peter to um, the restoration of Peter after Peter's denial. So those are the four resurrection appearances. The first two are covered by other gospel writers. The appearance to the disciples with Thomas present and the appearance by the Sea of Tiberias. Those are unique only to John. Now, I want you to see how these themes kind of come together in these post-resurrection appearances. In the first resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene, look at verse 17. Now, keep in mind that both Matthew and Mark also record this appearance of Jesus. Verse 17 of chapter 20. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Now, what, what is Jesus saying there to her? Keep in mind, Matthew and Mark don't record that statement. John does. And what is Jesus saying? He speaks of his unique relationship to the Father as the Son, as one who is ascending and going back to the Father, as one who has a unique relationship to that Father, and now because of what he has done, has brought his disciples, his people, into that unique relationship. Have we seen any of those themes before in the Gospel of John? Have we not spent the entire Gospel of John looking at this, this unique relationship that the Father and the Son have in the intertrinitarian relationship? We've looked at that. Have we not seen how Jesus refers to the, the Father as His Father? And because he, is, because he is God, He has this unique relationship as the only begotten Son of the Father. And because He is man, He can speak of the Father as being His God as well. So all of that is tied in there as John brings that theme to, to fruition, to blossom. The second, in the third resurrection appearance, I want you to notice, look at verse 21. Actually, it's up at the end of verse 19. Jesus said to them, and this was with Thomas absent, peace be with you. In verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now there Jesus mentions his peace being with his disciples. Him sending them as the Father has sent Him, and the Holy Spirit being given to them. Do those themes sound familiar? That's all of the upper room discourse, isn't it? In, in chapter 17, Jesus prayed, As the Father has sent Me, or as You have sent Me into the world, so I send them, so keep them and preserve them and sanctify them in the truth. That commission that Jesus gives to the disciples is based upon the commission that the Father gave to Him. And so here we have it again, the post-resurrection appearance. And His peace being with them and receiving the Holy Spirit. Four times in the last discourse of Jesus in verses in chapters 14 through 16, four times we have reference to the Spirit of truth and the Holy Spirit who would be with them and be in them forever. That was the promise. I'm sending you into the world and giving you the Holy Spirit for this ministry, for this task. And so go in my peace. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. We've looked at that for months now. And here in the post-resurrection appearance, which is uh, maybe a couple of months away, we have Jesus referring to that all over again. There's that theme coming up again in the, after the resurrection. And now look down at verse 27. This is with Thomas present. The end of verse 26, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Notice that Thomas is calling Jesus God, his God in that passage. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see me and yet have believed. In the Gospel of John, have we talked about belief and unbelief, true and false belief, and the role of evidence in belief and whether evidence can make you believe or not? Have we talked about that? All the way through the Gospel of John, right? And yet here in this resurrection appearance is that theme which we've been tracing all the way through since chapter 2. Here it comes to the surface again. So what do we have in the resurrection? We have this. All of the promises, all of the commands, all of the blessings, everything is secured for us in the resurrection. And it is almost as if John is reminding us now after the crucifixion and the resurrection that in terms of our commission and our calling and what God expects of us, 
Nothing has changed. He told them all this before he was ever arrested. And now after the resurrection, he is grabbing some of those things and he's saying, remember what I told you five days ago, six days ago, seven days ago? All of that is still, the game is still on. You're still in it. This is still true. All of those themes that we've been looking at for 17 chapters, they now all come up after the resurrection. As if it were true that all of the blessings and all the promises and everything he has said has been vouchsafed and secured by the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to see in these last three, uh, last four chapters. Let me give you three big theologies, big ideas as I sort of try and wrap up this overview of the last four chapters. First, we're going to see a number of themes concluded, as we've already looked at with post-resurrection appearances, but there's a lot more of them. All the way through this gospel, there are all kinds of themes that now come up in these last four chapters, almost in rapid succession, as we get this intensification of all of this truth now portrayed out in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. So we're going to see a lot of John's themes now come to a conclusion and all kind of woven together in a nice little bow tie on top of the Gospel of John. Second, we are going to see Scripture fulfilled in a number of ways in the crucifixion of Christ. John mentions the gambling of the soldiers for the garments of Jesus being a fulfillment of Scripture, Psalm 22. John mentions his bones not being broken as being a fulfillment of Scripture. Him being pierced in the side as being a fulfillment of Scripture. His betrayal by Judas was a fulfillment of Scripture. Everything that we're seeing here that is happening and unfolding is a fulfillment of Scripture. And we're going to see all of these passages that come to light from the Old Testament, and we see it unfold right before us now as as all of these prophecies about the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are fulfilled just as the Old Testament promised that they would be. So we're going to see a lot of Scripture fulfilled. And it reminds us that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ were not plan B in the plan of God. These are not things that happened that, that kind of took God by surprise or things that he whipped up on the spur of the moment. These are things that were planned and purposed and predestined to occur from before the foundation of the world. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was the plan of God. And all of the Old Testament prophecies promised it. And all of the Old Testament predicted it and anticipated it. And now it is coming to fruition. Now it is here and we get to see it unfold as a fulfillment of Scripture. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not just a tragic death of a martyr who, who, whose, whose life was tragically cut short because of an accident. It was, in fact, the plan and purpose of God, and we see it as a fulfillment of Scripture. And the third thing we're going to notice in these last four chapters is that we're going to see the sovereignty of Christ over all of this displayed. In every scene, in every circumstance, at every moment, we get the sense that Jesus Christ is not a hapless victim. He is not a martyr. This is intent. This is actually not an unwilling victim of a crime. This is a willing sacrifice who is laying his life down just as he said that he would. Back in John chapter 10, 10, Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own power. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And what does he do at the end of the gospel? As the good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep and he takes it up again. In fulfillment of his word just as he said that he would, just as he predicted he would. And through all of it, before Pilate, before Caiaphas, before Annas, in the garden, in all of it, it is the hand of Christ that is in sovereign control of every last event. There is not an individual in this drama. There is not a circumstance in all of this that is outside of his sovereign control. He is not being victimized. He is laying down his life as a sacrifice. And he is sovereign over the whole thing. Never does he lose his cool. Never does he lose his temperament. Never does he even seem as if anything is outside of his plan. He did it, and he did it willingly. So that brings us to the end of the Gospel of John. And I guess we could just stop right there and say, well, we finished it, we concluded it, right? We got to the end. But what fun would that be? 
275 sermons, and John just doesn't seem like a good number to end on. So we won't. Beginning next time, when we get together, we'll start at the beginning of chapter 18, and we will dive back into the beautiful details of this, of this narrative. Let's pray. Now, Father, we have beheld the glory of Christ in all of, its, in all of its fullness and its grace and giving His life for us, and we thank You for that. We, we understand that these chapters before us give the record of, of the shepherd laying down his life on behalf of those who would trust in him. And we are so thankful that he did. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being a sacrifice on our behalf for our sin. And we thank you for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the historical fact attested to by eyewitnesses that we can, that we can trust, that we can believe. It demands our belief. It demands our own sacrifice and the yielding of our life to you, our great God and Savior. We pray that you would confirm our faith and comfort us and encourage us through your word. Help us as we study this in the weeks ahead to, to see the hand of Christ in all of this and the glorious grace of our God in the sacrifice which has brought, brought salvation to your people. That we may give you honor and glory because of what you have done. That is our prayer. That is our desire. Grant it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.